Welcome to this week's episode of Nonfic Pod. Today we're talking about how words get good. And if you enjoy a good word, then you'll love Wild Words Festival. From the 3rd to the 5th of June in Cuffley, Hertfordshire, a brand new celebration of the written and spoken word for avid readers and writers alike. Get 10% off with the code NONFICPOD. Have a look at wildwordsfest.eventbrite.com or just wildwordsfest.com for more information. By Rebecca Lee. Rebecca is an editorial manager at Penguin Random House. She spent 20 years managing hundreds of high profile books from delivery of manuscript to finished copies, signing off millions of words as fit to go to print with only the occasional regret. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Emma. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, forget grammar. What are the rules for telling a really good story? Well, I think one of the things to consider is that over millennia, the way humans have told stories have often followed patterns. So one of the things I talk about in How Words Get Good is the brilliant Kurt Vonnegut, where you can find him on YouTube doing a fantastic explanation uh, of the uh, shapes of stories. And very famously, the most basic shape is uh, what he calls man in whole. And it doesn't have to be a man and he doesn't have to be in a whole, but it's that idea that the protagonist there is an issue that they have to overcome. And I think as humans, that really resonates with us. And there's lots of writing out there about plots that come up over and over again in the way that we shape and structure our stories. There's something about the way that humans' brains are uh, wired to expect certain things. We had David Robson on earlier this season talking about the expectation effect. And a really satisfying story can really hit that expectation and then fulfilment requirement that I think humans have. Especially recently, there's been a lot of talk about um, you know finding out that your fave is problematic. A few of my faves have turned out to be problematic. How much do we need to know about an author in order to enjoy their words? It's an excellent question, isn't it? Because again, so one of the other things uh, I sort of talk about in the book is writers, for example, that choose to stay anonymous. And one of the interesting things about that is that obviously it takes away all our expectations about what we think about the person that's doing the writing. And I suppose it's for individual readers to decide whether that makes it more or less pleasurable. Do we enjoy, do we find it helpful knowing the background of a writer or can, if we don't know anything about them, uh, does that actually change the reading experience? And I think that it probably does. So if you look at some, like, you know, uh, throughout history, there's been a lot of writers that have stayed anonymous, sometimes by choice, sometimes not by choice. But it does change the way that we as readers interact with the text. Yeah, and the idea of this single canonised author seems to be a sort of fairly early modern invention. We had uh, Amy Jeffs and Mary Wellesley on earlier in the series talking about Storyland and Hidden Hands and the idea that all stories were essentially authors would give the progeny of, you know, this comes from a myth that was told by this person and and we're very much more aware of, of inheritance. We now expect from writers this sort of flash of instant creativity and genius that is heretofore unprecedented. Is that 
Do you think where the phrase right drunk edit sober comes from? <laughs> the pressure to come up with something entirely new. <laughs> I think I think I have heard that phrase before, but I hadn't really thought about it for a long time, Emma. Um, well, first, first of all, I didn't actually write my book drunk. Um, <laughs> no, it probably would have helped on occasions. Um, I, I think, so one of the really interesting things about researching this book was um, one of my favourite chapters is about ghostwriting. Um, and again, going back in time, um, you're completely right that stories initially weren't owned by one person. They were owned by everybody. Uh, and telling them was a collective effort, particularly when you look at things like oral epic poems, for example. So I, I think there's definitely something in there. And I think the main point I really want to get over in this book is that all of publishing is a massive collective effort. So even if you have an author that has has this creative spark of genius, that in a sense is no good because, okay, they might be able to write it down on paper uh, or type on their uh, laptop these days, but to actually get it published, there's this whole infrastructure of support that will improve their words and getting them out into the hands of their readership. I remember at a party that profiled through, someone came up to me and said, oh my goodness, you know, I'm listening to you now and you sound exactly like you do on the page. And I said, you have no idea how hard my editor had to work to get me to sound on page the way I do when I'm speaking. But there's not just that one editor who sort of was sitting there hand-holding me. What are the other members of this team? The first editor that you'll encounter generally as an author uh, is your commissioning editor. And commissioning editors are in the lovely position of being able to make decisions about what gets published. Um, so and as an author, being on favourable terms with one, meeting one, uh, you know, working with one is an excellent sign. And commissioning editors tend to work on the macro level. So they are looking at how does it read uh, for your intended audience? Uh, they're looking at the plot and the structure and the big picture. Um, sort of making sure there's a coherent narrative or a coherent storyline running all the way through whatever it is that you're writing. Uh, so they're kind of more big picture and they might, uh, well, one thing uh, commissioning editors generally love to do is to cut. <laughs> so I think all writers suffer from the curse of thinking, well, I'm a writer, therefore more words are good. Um, and actually part of learning to be a writer, I don't know if you found this, but I certainly did, is learning to roll with the punches when your editor says, no, you should really cut this section. And it's something that I, like, this is my first book, I found it very difficult to do. But already looking back, I think I, think, uh, I should have listened to my editor more, I should have cut more. Um, anyway, so commissioning editors, looking at sort of big picture of what you're writing. After that, we move on to copy editors. And copy editors are perhaps, well, they're much more micro in scale, but their job really um, is to go through every sentence and scrutinise it for sense, for grammar, for typos. I mean, your commissioning editor to some extent, but your copy editor most certainly, they are your first readers. So if something doesn't make sense to them, it's probably worth going back and thinking about why that is. Because if they can't make sense of it, then perhaps your readers that pick up your book in a bookshop won't be able to either. And then once they've been through it, there is a whole other place where errors are either weeded out or, or put in, and that is the proofing stage. That's right. The bit that, as an author, you know, sort of giving away terrible 
secret here, admitting, making a terrible admission of, I don't think I looked at my final proofs with quite the amount of diligence that your book suggests it might have been a good idea to do. Um, so you talked about the idea of uh, blind versus copy proofing. Against so copy proofing. Yeah. Against copy proofing. Yeah. So how has the the process of proofing, how did it develop and how has it changed in recent years? Yeah, so originally um, your manuscript, which would have been actual physical bits of paper with your book written on it, um, would have gone, been sent to a typesetter. And the clue there is in the name. They, are literally, they were literally setting the hot metal type. So following your manuscript line by line and setting it um, and making up something that looks like page proofs. Nowadays, we don't do that because, of course, most people uh, produce their books on a laptop. So what happens is it's much less romantic. The digital file gets sent to a typesetter and gets run into a template. So it looks, again, like a set of page proofs. So the the kind of good point now is that you don't get typesetters introducing errors into text, which is what used to happen in the past when they were typing away. So memorably, I've had, you know, this was years ago uh, when I first started my career, our typesetters were certainly, you know, literally typing word for word. And occasionally, you know, something would happen like they'd lose their place or they'd fall asleep or they'd just go home and forgot where they got to and leave out a chunk of text or repeat a chunk of text. And so this so this is what the this is why you had an against copy proofreader. And their job was very simply to look at the original setting copy and read it against the proofs, because only then can you see what has been missed out or accidentally added in. So they were doing one very specific type of proofreading job. And the other proofreader, the blind proofreader, in some ways they had a better and nicer job because their job was just to read from beginning to end of the book as if they were someone in the bookshop that had just picked up a book. But interestingly, what you would find is that they would generally find different types of uh, errors as they were going through. And often now, um, publishers don't have to proofreaders. Where I work, very lucky, we still do. But that is why we had two types of proofreader and why they they had slightly different jobs to each other. And you mentioned that one of the um, the things that's re- a really good characteristic of someone who's going to be an excellent proofreader is that kind of spotter instinct. <laughs> yeah, definitely. How do you know if you've got the spotter instinct? Well, I guess the answer is you'll spot stuff. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I think if you're the kind of person that likes to sit at breakfast and read the back of your cornflakes packet and occasionally find an error and feel a thrill rushing through your body or somebody <laughs> who looks around the supermarket correcting signs that you see, um, then that is you know having the spotter mania um and I, I think as well it's something that you can train yourself in and and I think like many people when they're reading a book um they will spot errors or they will stop spot typos and you know often I'll receive in my day job receive emails from authors or directly from members of the public saying I loved your book but I found an error buried on page 639 um and they're not always correct that it's an error but often they are um and I think like I I think it's really interesting the way that we think about mistakes in books these days because I think now there's a kind of horror of the idea that something might be wrong in a book and obviously if you're the author you really don't want things to be wrong in your book but one of the things I talk about is how in the past um errors were a way for authors and readers to connect 
to kind of duel it out between themselves, to duke it out in the margins. Um, I'm sort of thinking uh, sort of 16th century, where, you know, footnotes and marginal marks became a way for people to argue with each other um, in the margins of books. And the typo was just part of life. It's just, you know, it was there. There was nothing you could do about it. Um, and it became a point of debate. And I think we kind of lost that kind of, you know, backwards and forwards between uh, reader and writer. You talk in the book about how books are often seen as if they are infallible, uncontrovertible sources of truth, when actually they go through far less fact-checking than, say, periodical publications. Absolutely, yes. Something that both astounded and terrified me. (laughs) (laughs) When the US version of swearing came out, there was a very deep legal read. Um, There was something that got taken out of the US edition um, that I won't mention here because I've already been advised by lawyers that it might just be (laughs) the grounds of actionable. But it was essentially, you know, was there anything other than the things that this person said and did that made you think that he was a racist, sexist ass hat. And it was like, well, no, only the racist, sexist ass hattery things that he did. But nobody checks my science but me. So, yeah, quite often I do rely on other other people yeah. who are familiar with the field. Ultimately, it's down to the author to do their due diligence. Um, and and it's difficult uh, writing, you know, I found this when I was writing my book, that the things that you think are true are actually just myths. Um, but like most myths, there's a kernel of truth there. So it's like, well, you know, you can discuss it because it's a fun story. And who really knows a lot of the time? Um, and so I was, I think I was fortunate in that the topic I'm writing about, there are lots of really fun, interesting stories. And in some ways, it's impossible to know wh- wh- why things are as they are. Um, so all you can do is just do what you can. And you've talked about the marginalia and the, oh, there's a beautiful um, sort of family tree or the, the, the family portrait of all of the, the marks that lead you to footnotes. And as a fellow fan of footnotes, um, I remember in, in the first one, I had to argue for every footnote that I got, whereas in the second one, uh, my, my editor was, was like, oh, go on then, have them. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I, love, I love an under aside. Um, and I, I'm thrilled by how many footnotes and how awesome the footnotes are in this book. So Thank for the, the uninitiated, what is the difference between a footnote and an end note? Well, so I have, I work with so many authors um, that refer to footnotes when what they actually mean are end notes and vice versa. And this is partly my own definition. But to me, a footnote is, as you said, an aside um, so you're reading through the main text and there's something else that the author wants to say to you about this point, but it doesn't quite fit in the main body of the text. So that is a footnote. If it's a source uh, or a credit, um, I would call that an end note and it would go in the end matter of the book. And footnotes are really interesting because they do arouse really strong opinions. And I'm delighted that you like them, Emma, because I I think my work would say, oh, I I can't bear footnotes. I hate them. I think that they interrupt the text, that they distract the reader. Whereas I'm like, I love footnotes. (laughs) Because they can be an extra little story in themselves. And there's also that idea of why is it not quite enough for the main text but yet it's a point that's still worth making so they're very very subtle and nuanced yeah and I, your footnotes are fantastic as someone who grew up with essentially reading terry pratchett i i am um, i love a footnote and there is that sense of you go from uh, for me anyway whenever i drop into footnote voice it is this is me the author 
directly telling you a thing um, versus this is me in authorial voice taking you through an argument. It's like, pause the argument for a minute, though, because this is really interesting. And I've noticed I do this in talks as well. I, I tend to pile on the parentheses. And I'm now, as I'm getting older, I can only keep track of about three digressions <laughs> in my talks at any given time. So that's really interesting, that point that, like, your information-giving voice is in the main text. But you come in, you know, your personality and your view of things, your personal view might come into the footnotes. And I I think that's amazing. It's like, you know, it's like as an author being able to step away from the topic that you're writing about, but just show a little bit of yourself. Um, And some people will probably say I'm showing far too much of myself in my footnotes. Um, And my editor, again, made me take out quite a lot, which (laughs) is like a a little dagger to the heart. (laughs) A footnote dagger to the heart every time you do Uh, (laughs) well I really do I wonder psychologically whether I feel better about putting more of myself in the footnotes just because they're in a smaller font (laughs) maybe it's like just but I think it's that I don't know there's I I I have this feeling there's just something else that I want to say or I want to just give a flavor of me and and I think the footnote is definitely the place for it um and you can just have so much fun with them as well you know yeah, fantastic. And, and you mentioned Terry Pratchett, and I know so many Terry, Terry Pratchett fans love the footnotes, love the, you know, what you find out about him uh, through footnotes. Well, long live the footnotes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I did find when I was doing the audio book of How to Build a Human that I also had to develop a, a footnote voice. And I'm wildly impressed with all the typography that's in this version that I've got. And this is this is the the advanced reading copy. I know that there's some that's still marked up, but yes, there's been a lot of work to make sure that the the typography is just so. Are you planning to do an audiobook of this? I well, <laughs> I need to speak to profile about this. Um, so one of the things I mentioned in um about footnotes is that David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, which has many footnotes, um, when they did the audiobook, they created this kind of um whisper to do the footnotes in so they had a whole sort of special way of indicating that it was actually footnoted text and I think that's just fantastic like that kind of idea that it's like this little echoey voice that's slightly separate to the main text um and I I don't know how I would do an audiobook with footnotes because you know like you you want to signpost them but maybe I just need to have a different voice I don't know Well, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing how you narrate things in small caps. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all know that caps are shouting. So, <laughs> but, I, but I guess as well, it's like, you know, um, so italic was developed as a way of um, showing emphasis. And I, like, I do have this kind of idea in my head that early man, when he was kind of doing cave stories or, you know, painting on the walls of caves, he realised quite quickly that he needed a way to uh, indicate sarcasm. Um, or mm. emphasis in the stories he was telling. <laughs> and that's really what kind of italics is. So, and it's like this, you know, how do you convey that through an audio recording? I don't quite know, but maybe I can work on the problem. Yeah, I, I really look forward to hearing it if and when it comes out. Um, so you talk about Marinetti, who is a big fan of typography, uh, mm. talking about, and this is in, was it the 1910s, 1920s? 1920s but bold yeah. for onomatopoeic um, and I can't remember the other ones that he suggested, but it really does feel like a precursor of comic books. It was particularly that idea that onomatopoeic things should be in bold. And I just thought of the pow 
in mm. you know comic books from 1940s onwards do you think there's a precursor there in linear text to the comic book or the graphic novel yeah I, I guess like it's so interesting isn't it because it feels like if you're a writer your way of doing emphasis can be quite individual and unique to you um and so like I feel like with like people like Marinetti sort of they were breaking new ground um, about how they emphasise their words. And I hadn't really even thought about comic books, but it's a great point. You know, it's like, how do you draw attention? How do you, because you have to do it within the body of the text. Um, so whatever's happening with the emphasis, it's got to be relative to the main body of the text as well. And again, there's lots of people that don't like um a very busy typographical pages you know they want everything calm and ordered whereas I the kind of writer I am I like caps small caps you know because they say something to me and I think one, and one of the things I say in the book is when I send whatsapp messages I drive everyone mad by properly italicizing and bolding words in my whatsapp messages I saw that footnote. Actually, yeah, I, in fact, I tapped. I was on a plane at the time and I tapped both my husband and my housemate on the shoulder. It's like, see, look, not mad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it does, like, for me, it really brings meaning because it's how, how you hear, like, uh, what's important to a writer is partly about how it's physically presented on a page. Um, yeah. And I think that's something that we, like, perhaps these days with sort of digital typesetting and things, we don't think about quite as much. But you know, the beautiful like sort of drop caps at the opening of a chapter um, or the use of dashes or the use of like printer's ornaments, you know, all add to the reading experience. And it's really important. And the ellipses. Um, oh. <laughs> I, I noticed that I always put those at the end of my WhatsApp messages because I wonder if I'm just a little bit kind of indirect. They're <laughs> <laughs> not quite a question mark, but they do sort of invite, you know, maybe maybe and it's like I hadn't really I, I went back and I looked and I was like yeah no I do that a lot I end my yeah. whatsapp messages with, yeah. with because they bring ambiguity and so I think they you know they allow space for the person that you're messaging to fill in yes. the gap without feeling that you're sort of <laughs> telling them what to do or what to think and and I love that idea of an ellipsis you know um trailing off into the distance and allowing the reader to have some space for their response. I think it's, it's really like a fantastic tool uh, for creating that kind of moment between the reader and the writer. Um, yeah, I love them. Yes, fantastic <laughs> tool and, and really go with my indirect style of speech. Yeah, and, and this whole idea, they're actually very British, you know, that, that we're, yes. we're, kind of, like, we're the masters of these conversations that don't really, like, like on the surface, they're not at all meaningful, but underneath there's all this like stuff going on. I mean, maybe ellipses are just quite passive aggressive. I don't know. There's <laughs> definitely something about not wanting to be too committal, I think. Yes. I yeah. Think. yeah. They allow dot, you a lot dot, of dot. room, like, which for three little dots is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I finally learned how to properly hyphenate as a mildly <laughs> unhinged author. I thought that was an excellent example. <laughs> um, yes, you talk a lot about the the specs in the text and how punctuation adds to readability. Unless you are one of those authors who go, no, you should be able to figure out where the emphasis and the pace mm -hmm. should be. Um, mm -hmm. But we tend to use uh, mainly sort of. I, I'm a big fan of a semicolon. It has to be said. Mm -hmm. And again, these get edited out uh, quite often. That's fair enough. Um, 
but specs in the text to me are a, a reader comfort device. I felt an awful lot of reader discomfort when you were talking about, I'm going to pronounce this badly, I think, but scripta continua and also the Greek one. I'm not even going to try and pronounce in Greek, but the oxen ploughing method. So <laughs> never mind not having commas. What were these ways of writing and why am I so glad they're gone? Well, scripta continua basically uh, does what it says on the tin. There's no space between the words. And the other one, I think it's buspestodon, which means in the manner of oxen turning a plough. So it's backwards. Um, and um, I think the Greeks used it. Um, so, I, but I guess this is like, so this is what people would have been used to reading, um, which sounds absolutely awful to us. Um but I think the point about specs in the text is that when you're writing, one of the things that you can really do for your reader is just provide these little handholds, these little things for them to grip onto. Um, and that is what grammar and punctuation does, isn't it? It's this kind of way of saying, you know, I respect you as a reader enough to make my text legible for the majority of people. Because I think if, you, if you're going to be like James Joyce and not use any punctuation at all, it becomes very difficult, you know, for for your reader to follow. Like, you know, it might be very clear to you, but it's kind of rude in a way. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I do I do think like I don't want people to think, oh, this is a book about how to use semicolons completely accurately all the time because that's really not me. I'm not a grammar expert, um, and there's lots of people out there that understand the rules of grammar far far better than I do. So I'm quite an instinctive grammarian, um, but I do think. Um, these little tiny marks in the text have like real punching power. You know, they're, they're the thing that readers can grab onto and say, okay, I understand how this sentence works. Okay, new paragraph here. New, so probably a new idea here. And it's just about respecting your reader and leading them through the text in a way that's really helpful. Yeah, I notice, particularly reading children's books, um, the importance of meter. I think for most of us as adults, we tend to re read more prose. And so that punctuation provides that sort of pacing whereas my daughter is is still just at the tail end I think of the Julia Donaldson phase yeah and recognizing her use of meter compared to many other rhyming children's books who will remain nameless <laughs> it's staggering the difference like I can almost read Highway Rat on autopilot because I know the meter yeah. there are others that I'm trying to do it and then there's one word where the emphasis is just wrong and it, when you're tired and it's the seventh <laughs> book at bedtime yeah. so, is punctuation or response to becoming literally more prosaic maybe maybe and I don't know whether you find it unhelpful that like I imagine that's a bit like having a song stuck in your head that you've like you know the fact that you, you your daughter could presumably say the first sentence and you would be able to then immediately follow on because the, the highway rat was a beast what he wanted and ate what he took absolutely I mean yeah rhyme and meter are so good for memorizing things aren't they and and then you have to think about and again this is just something I touched on in the book because I'm not an expert in it but how many years ago most people didn't read they couldn't read the only people that could read were the elites uh, or people, say, in monasteries. And so listening was what everyone could do. So the experience of reading was actually the experience of listening for a very long time. And it wasn't until you had mechanised printing um, that people could then increase literacy and then actually read for themselves, which, of course, was also a great danger to all the elites because it allowed people 
to form their own thoughts and opinions through the words that they were encountering on the page. And that idea of reading with an internal voice. And my daughter, again, has has just mastered this. And that transition from being read to, to reading aloud, to reading in her own head. And I almost feel a sort of sense of loss there. There's this moment where now that she is experiencing that world that is created between her and the writer. Yes. Yeah, she's kind of cut out the middleman as it were I guess hasn't she and yeah I am no longer her um I don't know the person performing these Julia Donaldson poets uh, <laughs> I'm sure there always be room for you to perform them though Emma that's <laughs> 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 really like I I feel like this is one of those uh stories that we tell ourselves about our childhoods and I am convinced that I can remember sitting in a chair in my grandmother's front room when I was very young on a Sunday morning so we always used to visit her on a Sunday morning reading a book and as I was reading the book, I suddenly realised that I was reading it not out loud. I was reading it in my head. And ah. I, like, I remember the feeling. It was like the strangest feeling, like that I'd stopped reading the words out loud and I was just hearing them in my head. It's like yeah. it's always really stayed with me. I don't remember my exact moment of doing that, but I do remember the wonder of walking around a town centre and being able to look around and, and know which shops were which and know that the, the names of them related to things that, you know, I'd, I'd heard of Boots and Sainsbury's and, and suddenly here they were revealing themselves to me. Yeah, and you recognise the sign and yeah, exactly. It that is thing. such an incredible power. Um, yeah. And one of the things I think is, has made us as a species that much stronger, being able to communicate not just across space, but across time with people. It sounds trite, but it's true. But the distance you can travel in a sentence let alone a paragraph or the page of a book or an entire book, is incredible, isn't it? That, mm. that it's the way our minds speak to each other is via these marks on a page. And when, or, you know, or even earlier, like on papyrus or clay or whatever. But it is an incredible thought that you can read something and hear what someone was thinking 300 years ago, 400 years ago. The one thing I do remember very clearly is the moment of going to the big town's library instead of the little village library where I grew up, looking at how many books there were and going, I might not be able to read all the books. <laughs> and and I, st- I don't think I've quite got over that sort of stab of grief of realising yeah. that it wasn't possible yeah. to read all the books. Yeah, there'll never be enough time, Emma. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's, really, it's very sad. And now I've made it worse. You've made it worse. By I, know, I was thinking the same. Adding to <laughs> well, I really recommend that people do make time to read How Words Get Good because it has got excellent um, and it tells you how those little black inert marks on a bit of paper can set off so many fireworks in your brain. Rebecca, if people want to find you online, where is the best place? Uh, probably on Instagram at the moment, shamefully. Uh, I'm not really on Twitter very much, although I'm going to try and improve my presence there. Um, but I'm on Instagram. It's um, at Velocireb. V-E-L-O-C-I-R-E-B. Don't ask me. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for making this book, the story of making a book. It's been a smashing pleasure to have you on Nonfic Pod. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Today's episode of Nonfic Pod featured Rebecca Lee and How Words Get Good, the story of making a book. 
It's published by Profile on the 17th of March 2022, and it will be available in every good bookshop, and it is a fantastic read. I've been your host, Emma Byrne. Mike Wire is our engineer. And don't forget that you can get 10% off tickets for Wild Words Festival by using the code NONFICPOD. Go to wildwordsfest.com for more details. by rating, reviewing and sharing Nonfic Pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. 